You are about to listen to my conversation with Tim Trombley, who is a professor of corporate finance at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois. He has published peer-reviewed articles in journals such as the Journal of Financial and Quantitative Management, Organization Science, and the Journal of Corporate Finance. In this episode, you're going to hear a financial wizard discuss the topic of corporate finance and politics, capitalism as a whole, the financial crisis of 2008, and much, much more, all with this mere mortal right here. If you find this episode educational, I invite you to click the share button beneath this video if you're watching on Facebook. And if you enjoy watching and listening to conversations like these, please subscribe to The Paul Garcia Show on YouTube, like my page on Facebook, follow me on Instagram, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to directly contribute to the show's production while also gaining early access to every single episode, I would love for you to become a patron on patreon.com forward slash Paul Garcia. You can also make one-time donations on Venmo to The Paul Garcia Show. Your support is very much appreciated. Keeping with the theme of patronage, I'd like to take this chance to thank my current beloved patrons, Iron Man Wrestling, John the Hebrew Hammer Traub, my good friend Josh Hartke, Greg Sullins, The Metcalfs, Jared Walter, Zach B., Henry Steffen, Shaquille Oatmeal, Alyssa Ricketts, Miranda Noyes, Parker Shilson, Ben, Greasy Elbows Traub, and Anne. You are all amazing. Today's official sponsors are Kelly Gerber, a trusted real estate agent in central Illinois, Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Forest Edge Tree Service in Livingston County, Fairbury Furniture in Fairbury, and Tri-County Carpet and Flooring also in Fairbury. These are all great businesses that I personally endorse, so if you go to them, be sure to tell them that you heard about them on The Paul Garcia Show. Now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Tim Trombley. Hello and welcome to The Paul Garcia Show, a show about the remarkable people of Central Illinois. I'm your host, Paul Garcia, and I invite you to join me as I speak with these individuals about their stories, the lessons they've learned, and the knowledge they've gained along the way. Tune in every Sunday to witness the power of bringing each new individual's unique journey into the spotlight. The topic that you know so much about is hugely important. It is a field that people do not know much about, and it appears that you know an awful lot about it because you, and I had to write this part down, you are, of course, a professor of finance at, of corporate finance at ISU. You have a PhD in finance from Purdue. You've published papers, numerous papers, some alongside professors from Harvard. You have an MBA with concentrations in finance and real estate from University of Cincinnati, a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, and minors in history and physics. Why so much schooling? That's incredible. Why did you keep... Why did you stay in school so long, learn about so many things? Uh, to tell you the truth, I never really liked school. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> no, no. I, uh, I was that kid in high school who didn't really put much work in, but, you know, was smart enough to pass the classes at least. And then got to college and was like, wow, everyone here is smart. <laughs> mm. uh, don't really think I want to go back to school at all but then the um the great recession forced me back into school you really? might say yeah so i, I got a job in, out of college at, in a real estate company and can i ask it, what real estate company it was uh sure it was called uh, phillips edison it was a um it was a we own 
uh, strip malls, basically. We own grocery anchored shopping centers. So, uh, but I got that job in 2008. Ooh, heck <laughs> well, of a time. Yeah, it wasn't the best to go time. into the real estate industry. Yeah. So, wow. I, so I got out, uh, uh, you know, so that didn't, it was a great company. The company was actually really healthy through the recession, a uh, great place to learn, but then, um, <laughs> then, you know, things went south during the recession for everybody and they didn't need me anymore. So, mm. uh, so I was actually on the unemployment line for quite a while for almost two years at that point. So I decided that uh, going back to school was probably my best bet. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I, I want to go back to 2008 in just a second, but we have to acknowledge that you have a, a minors in history and physics. Why did why those things? Was that purely off of your own self interest, or you're just yeah. interested in those things? Yeah, I actually started out as a history major, history and civil engineering major. But yeah, you know, then hmm. uh, I, I, to tell you the truth, I don't really know why I switched. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, at that time, I wasn't really career focused, and just was taking what interested me. Well, that's yeah. that's almost a. A recommended path to go down by some people. It's it's a little risky to pursue simply what you're interested in and just hope for the best when it comes to getting a career thereafter. But look at I mean Steve Jobs has some of the best advice that I've that I've ever come across. And he did exactly what you did. He dropped out of college actually, so not exactly what you did. He dropped out of college and started dropping in on the classes that interested him, like classes like calligraphy, different artistic classes, some computing classes. And because he was so interested in them, he became really invested in them. And he says, only do what you believe is great work. Don't settle for some terrible career that you're not interested in because you're going to want to kill yourself before too long if you stay in it too long. So pursue what you're interested in and do what you believe is great work. And it seems like you're kind of going down that path a little bit, but you did also stick with finance, which Uh, I'd say. I'd say you're a lot closer to Steve Jobs than I am in that sense. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I've been wanting to get a poster of him for a while because I think he is awesome. But, okay. For, so You might say for me it was just happy accidents. Happy accidents. Okay. So, really quick, there is a lot of people that listen to the show that weren't directly impacted by the recession in 2008. And I don't think I fully understand what exactly happened there, but you were... You were in the workforce at that time. You were directly affected. Mm-hmm. What happened in 2008, and what was it actually called? Um, so, I could tell you from, uh, so when I started, I started work in February 2008, and a couple months after I started, my uh, the CFO of our company, who I worked a lot directly with because it was a mid-sized company, uh, he, comes, he told us that, you know, there was something big disruptions in the market coming down the path because of like he, he had uh, worked in investment banking. He was very familiar with this, uh, with the environment and he could see that stuff was starting to unravel, but it wasn't until really August that it, the depth of the problems really started to manifest themselves uh, to, to where everybody could see them. So it basically, are, are you asking for the causes of it? Or the what happened first of all, and then maybe the okay. causes. So this is the real estate market that you're talking about. Is that correct? Uh, so he was. You you begin you begin to see issues in the real estate market in mid 2007 when some when people started falling behind on their um, on their mortgages and it it uh, 
for the investment banks, they were able to see like several of their hedge, their, several of their funds failed in mid 2007. But at that time, you know, it just looked like a correction in the real estate market. Mm. And a correction in any individual market isn't necessarily going to affect everybody. It didn't start to affect everyone until it got so big that it was unavoidable in uh, like somewhere around mid 2008. And it got because it the real estate market is actually a much larger market than you'd think. Uh, It's just that most of the time it's so safe that it doesn't really affect other markets all that much. So when it got so big that losses in real estate were endangering every single large bank, that's when it got to the point where it was a nationwide, really a worldwide crisis. So, okay, so help me to understand exactly what was going on. You started noticing things unraveling in the real estate market in 2007, or at least your CFO, <laughs> I think, is it what you said? He noticed it. Uh, he no- Well, so, it, yeah, about mid-2007, there were several um, real estate funds that, that failed. Which at that point, the economy was doing phenomenal in 2000. It, it's, it's hard to go back a decade later and remember the exact timing of things for, mm-hmm. for lots of us because, you know, the years sort of blend together. But I, um, it, it, when you actually look at, like, historians going back and, and, and uh, reconciling these with what we know now, it's, it, it started out just a few funds failed and then – a few more funds failed, and then in, I think it was February or March 2008, Bear Stearns failed, which they were one of the large uh, investment banks that sort of ran Wall Street. There's really five large banks that ran Wall Street at that time. And by ran, I mean just they were so large that most people did dealings with them on one okay. side or the other. And Bear Stearns was the smallest of them, the, of those big five, and they were long known as the most risky one so when they failed first it didn't really it it was a big deal but it the implications of it weren't clear that it was also going to affect the other four to that effect and by the time by august uh it had gotten so uh problematic that um all of them were about to fail okay so when you say these funds failed you mean that banks around the country, huge, small perhaps as well, that would give out money from their real estate funds to people to buy homes, they were giving them out, and if I understand correctly, they were giving them out big time, like to a lot of people, and they were just overly trusting or something, like, okay, you don't have wonderful credit, but here's that loan that you want to get that house, and then they're like, oh boy, they go buy the house, and then wouldn't you know it, you could have told by their credit score or something like that, that they're not going like, to be likely to pay this back in a timely manner. So so what, did they give out things too freely, too trustingly, and then people failed to pay them back, these loans for businesses and homes and things like that? Uh, in short, yes. Um, the reason why... Uh, um, let me think of how to put this. So, yes, when they made these loans, they thought that they could be paid back. Banks do not want to foreclose on houses. They That's... Every time they have to foreclose, they lose money. They lose a lot of money when they foreclose on a house. That's something a lot of people come, there's a common misperception is people think that banks want to foreclose on your house. That's the exact opposite. Usually by the time the house actually gets foreclosed upon, it's usually not worth very much. And just for clarification for dum-dums like me, foreclosure means what exactly? Oh, thanks. Uh, So foreclosure is when the bank takes back your house because you haven't paid on the mortgage. So if you... When you sign a 
mortgage. When you get a loan from a bank, you give the bank a mortgage, and that gives them the right to repossess the house, to take ownership of it from you if you do not pay on the loan. So really, most people, when they buy a house, they buy it with 20% of their own money and 80% of the bank's money. So really, in a sense, it's the bank taking the most risk Hmm. because they're putting up 80% of the money. And typically when people aren't paying their mortgage, they're also not paying a lot of other bills like that leak in the roof <laughs> that oh it, oh really know, oh yeah that makes I mean, perfect sense i'm not surprised but i know, didn't even consider that yeah and that devalues the house and uh, and that's not even counting the fact that a lot of people when they get foreclosed upon they might blame the bank and might take actual action against the house uh, that's why oh, frequent, that's like why out of spite like yeah. screw you you're taking my house away uh, sledgehammer <laughs> I, i've I, uh, I, at one point in my life, I was trying to buy foreclosed houses. And uh, yeah, I mean, you'd see things like that. Like, how did this happen? It looks like someone took a sledgehammer to this wall. And well, wow, perhaps that it, it, now that's I'm not saying that that happens all the time. And, and of course, the people's pain is understandable. If, if, if you're to the point where you're losing your house, you're pretty much losing a lot of things in your in your life it's more than just a house it's it's almost an admission that you're a a failure in the eyes of many people so it's it's highly emotional i can i can understand people's distress over the situation that they're in especially because they like you usually get in that situation because you lost your job that's that's frequently happened so it's uh the point is from the bank's perspective, whoops, sorry. You're from, good. from the bank's perspective, they don't want to foreclose. That's the last thing they want to do. They only do it as a last resort. So when you make a loan as a bank, when they make the loan, they don't. It, they go in taking a lot of precautions to try to make sure that they don't have to foreclose. And bank officers frequently would get graded based on how many of them end up not foreclosing uh, that's in that's something that like when the when the uh like when the fed looks at banks they take a very close look at the percent of the loans that are paid back if there's a lot of loans in the bank's portfolio that aren't being paid back that mm. bank is not as stable it loses credibility and it will are they going to be less mm. likely to get like bailed out by the government if that situation ever comes up or something like that or <laughs> Uh, well, bailouts are something completely separate, but okay. but they are going to be more likely to not be able to meet their own bills because the bank right. doesn't just have a pile of money that they got from nowhere. They got that pile of money from investors, and they have to pay those investors bank back. So in 2008, uh, that was actually one of the big problems is that there was way too much money trying to be given to the banks to invest in a lot of different things. So there's there's a lot of different sources of this money, uh, uh, but it was all trying to be flooded into asset markets at the same time. Um, p- part of it was due to banking expansion in a few small tax shelter countries such as Ireland and Iceland. Part, part of it was actually due to oil money because oil was riding high at the time. Well, this is interesting. Yeah, okay. so, so there was oil money riding in every oil producing country was flush with cash and wanting to invest it in safe Western American debt markets. 
So mm-hmm. the, uh, you look at Norway, you look at Saudi Arabia, you look at Russia, you look at Canada actually has a ton of oil. You look at the Alaska Permanent Fund was riding high at the time because uh, um, a lot of the oil being pumped in Alaska ends up, uh, you know, the money goes into a fund called the Alaska Permanent Fund and they invest it's billions and billions of dollars that, they're, that they need someplace to put that to get a return. They can't just sit on it. So what they want to put it someplace safe because they want to be do good by their own constituents. Mm-hmm. And one of the safest places to put it is real estate. We are brought to you by Tri-County Carpet and Flooring, Sales and Installation in Fairbury, Illinois. Roll the clip. Tri-County Carpet and Flooring in Fairbury is the premier flooring store throughout Livingston, McLean, and Ford counties. From choosing the perfect flooring to measuring an installation, Tri-County ensures top quality products and services. Their trained professionals boast precise measurements, straight cuts, and perfect fits, while their showroom houses a multitude of gorgeous, top-quality, name-brand carpet and flooring options in the latest styles and colors that are durable and long-lasting. With free estimates, design consultation, and contractor and multi-room discounts, Tri-County in Fairbury is your one-stop shop for all of your home and business flooring needs. Pay them a visit at 19 Jan Lane in Fairbury, Illinois, right off of Route 24, and give them a call at 815-692-3666. Tri-County Carpet, your flooring paradise. Well, don't they say yeah. real estate is is like the number one asset that you want to put your money into because it's always appreciating? It's yeah, I've heard it's the safest, <laughs> right? Unlike you wouldn't put yeah. it in cars or anything like that, you know, because those depreciate so quickly. And I don't really know what yeah. I'm talking about, by the way, of course. But oh, that's like you're not the only one. I actually had a classmate um, who uh, at that so right before I got hired at the real estate company, it was uh, was in school. I had a classmate who told me that her plan, she was French. She said her retirement plan was when she graduated, she would get up enough money right away and buy a flat in Paris. Okay. And that was her retirement plan because, and I quote, real estate never goes down in value. And I just remember thinking, what? never get like there's no asset that never goes down in value um Mm. and so that's uh that's a fallacy every price can go up and down the fact that real estate is immune or this idea that real estate is immune to that is just not true Hmm. and that was part of why people were taking too much risk and another factor of why people were taking too much risk is that there was a new financial product on the market at the time called um, uh, called commercial mortgage-backed securities where they would um, basically, okay, so let me think of how to explain this. Commercial mortgage-backed securities. Right. So okay. what they would do is they, if you see, they explain this in the big short, the, the movie, the big short. Have you ever seen that movie? I have not. I've heard of it though. Okay. So basically what they do is rather than, if I'm an investor and I want to buy a loan, right? So it's, it's sort of funny to think about that. If I'm an investor and I buy a loan, it's actually an asset for me. Huh. <laughs> I so, buy your loan. So, like, so I, I come to the bank. Yeah. So you're you're on the other side of the bank. Here's yeah. the bank. I come to them and say, hey, I'd like to take out a loan to buy a house. Okay, and then what? You say, that loan they just gave you, I'll actually buy that and you can have my money or something. Right, so that's frequently what banks would do is rather than 
keeping one loan or rather than selling one loan to one investor, they would package a thousand loans together and sell the package to an investor. That's odd. So uh, you take on the risk instead of the person that came and got the loan in the first place. Is that right? Instead of instead of the bank, yeah. And wow, it wasn't just so where this ran into issues was that it, somewhere around the early two thousands they got the idea that well why don't we just so we'll package this thousand together and we won't sell the whole thousand rather we'll take the top piece of it so we'll say the first thousand dollars that come in every month goes to this investor. The second thousand dollars that comes in every month goes to this investor. We sell them off as individual pieces so that the people at the top would have the top rated stuff that, so that uh, there's no chance that that would fail, right? Because if you have a thousand loans, you can have some of them be paid back at least, right? Mm-hmm. Typically, you'd pro- on most years, you'd think probably 99% of them would get paid back. So if you got that 80th percent piece in most years you'd be perfectly safe if you got the 90th percent piece in most years you'd be perfectly safe so when they sliced it up like this the problem was that nobody knows how to price that mathematically okay so if you tell me that you're going to give me a thousand loans a thousand home loans right that Mm -hmm. i'm going to buy them I can tell you with pretty good certainty what the value of that should be. I can calculate what are the odds that uh, that one of them is going to default. What are the odds that two of them is going to default? Mm-hmm. What are the odds that three of them is going to default? And I can take that. And that as, means fail to pay back their loan? Right. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, default means fail to pay back the loan, and uh, which would be a loss for the investor. So if I can calculate those probabilities, I, which is – relatively straightforward to do for someone who's an expert, um, then I can figure out how much it's worth. That's fairly straightforward. What's not straightforward is that when you chop up this loan into littler pieces where one piece gets the first bit of cash flow from a thousand different underlying loans and one piece gets the second uh, amount that comes in. And when you start chopping it up like that, then nobody knows how to actually calculate the probabilities. That does that. sound like an odd way to set this whole thing up, right? It's like the first yeah. 10 people that pay on the first of the month their mortgage or whatever, or they pay yeah. their loan to the bank, that goes to person A, who is an <laughs> investor. The next 10 people or whatever that come to pay their thing during the month, like you just hope you don't have the group B of 10 people that t- are terrible at paying back their loans or else you're going to get screwed. That's yeah. that's odd to, ah, what what's the word? Well, to anyway well what it allows <laughs> you to do is it allows you to sell all those first chunks for more money mm-hmm. because you're going to be think about it, if i'm an investor i'm going to pay more for that first chunk than i would for the for the last chunk well what's better about the first chunk than the last chunk so that's the first so is so it the like, top tier of it's not credibility it's, or what yeah so it's not just the the top tier of it's not just like the best of those thousand loans it's the whole package, let's say those thousand loans pay, I don't know, $100,000 a month. The first $10,000 that come in that month goes to the first investor. Then the second 10000 oh. goes to the second so investor. So if you're in the first, if you're the first investor, you're always going to get it. Right. You're, you're okay. I which, see. I see. Which means you're willing to pay more for it. It's safer. Sure. And 
if you're a pension fund where you're investing people's retirement funds, you want to invest in something that's safer typically. Mm. So you're willing to pay more for that. If you're an insurance company, you know, you you have to be there when people's house burned down or when a tornado comes through. Sure. You have to be there and pay off your own investor, the people who need, um, uh, uh, who buy policies from you. So your pieces have to be safe. In fact, those are highly regulated pension funds and uh, insurance companies and even large commercial banks like, you know, like your Fifth Third Bank, your Huntington Bank, those commercial banks where you have your deposits in, those those are actually highly regulated and they can't invest in riskier products or they, they can't invest much of their portfolio in riskier products. So they with that by chopping up the loans that way most of the loan ends up being graded as a safe investment product that these large institutions can invest in leaving just those one slice at the bottom or maybe two slices at the bottom as the riskier debt that uh that then is more difficult to place. That then you have to find somebody who's willing to take more risk. Yeah, and who would want to do that in the first place? Probably <laughs> like individuals rather than huge businesses, right? I don't know, uh, but uh, so they call them hedge funds, which is basically uh, uh, pension funds are allowed to place a certain amount of their money in hedge funds, but most of hedge funds is stuff like you know when uh, um, when the Walton family gets their extra. Uh, when it gets their dividend from Walmart, they might put a lot of it in hedge funds. Or what is a hedge fund? I hear this term all the time. I <laughs> yeah, can't be alone yeah. in not knowing what exactly that means. Good luck explaining it in a way that's coherent, <laughs> but I'd love to hear it. We are brought to you by Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Illinois. Studies show that pizza from Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury is the tastiest pizza to those of us with properly functioning brains and taste buds. Don't fight the science. Pizza from Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury is spectacular. And not only that, they also offer a daily happy hour. So if you call between 4 and 5 p.m. and order a pizza, you get the second one of equal or lesser value for free. Restrictions apply. You can even call at 4.45 p.m., you know, in between 4 and 5, order your pizzas, pick them up at 8 p.m. and you will still get that happy hour discount. For the most delicious pizzas around, head nowhere else but Marshalloni's Pizza in Fairbury, Illinois. It's perfect for after football games. Call them up and place your order today at 815-692-4602 and pick it up at 405 East Locust Street in Fairbury. Uh, I actually have trouble with this as well, defining it because... So don't feel bad (laughs) if you don't know what a hedge fund is, despite hearing it thrown around all the time. (laughs) Yeah, uh, a hedge fund is sort of a catch-all term for an investment fund that has very few rules on what they're allowed to invest in. So if you invest in a, a pension fund, it's heavily regulated as far as what they're allowed to invest in. An insurance company is heavily regulated on what they're allowed to invest in. Right. A hedge fund has very few rules on what they're allowed to invest in. Pretty, and they, they don't really even have to report in many cases what they're investing in unless they are mm-hmm. large enough to where they have to... Um, uh, uh, so they have to report what their holdings are every three months. Like okay, that's pretty much it. Like they don't have to report their earnings. They don't have to because uh, it's a private company, and in the United States, private companies don't have to report anything to, to the SEC in most cases. Do you think that's a beautiful thing that private uh, entities don't have to, you know, adhere to too many <laughs> rules and stipulations and things like that? I think that's pretty cool. 
Yeah. I, I like that, especially with small <laughs> businesses. You know, if they're private, they can do pretty much whatever they want and everything like that. But uh, no, there are many rules on what companies are and aren't allowed to do, even if they're private, even if they're if they're not publicly traded. So, so when we talk about private, there's two different words that both people both use to be private. Some people use private to mean not controlled by the government. So like, uh, um, like Illinois state university, my employer is controlled by the government. So it's not private. Hence the name state in it. Right. Right. Yes. So that's different than when we're, if we're talking in trade and, um, in the stock market where a public stock would be like John Deere or Walmart, where you and I can actually buy shares in it. And we're just members of the public as opposed to like uh, Coke industries, which is uh, the Coke brothers uh, company. So that's a privately held company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's private in both senses where it's not government controlled and it's also not publicly traded on the New York stock exchange or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me see if I have this straight, which I probably don't, but correct me. (laughs) So you're talking about a hedge fund, Mm -hmm. and what these are are organizations that invest in other, who knows what, businesses, corporations, whatever. They invest, they try their best to make back some money, make some profit off Mm -hmm. of their investments, and I put my money in there. Like if I have a, a retirement fund or something, I can put it in a Roth IRA, which is, you know, invests in some really credible, really safe businesses. I like that. That sounds good. I'll probably do that. Or I could invest my retirement savings, retirement fund into a hedge fund. And that's probably going to be really volatile. They're crazy, but I probably have a chance for making some sweet gains and making some sweet profit, right? Is that correct? But I also have a much higher likelihood of tanking than I would with a Roth IRA. Is that right? Like a hedge fund is different than a Roth IRA is different than uh, who knows what else because of its reliability? Um, Right. So uh, uh, an IRA is just a way of figuring out the tax consequences to you. But your, your IRA is typically invested in mutual funds. Mutual funds are publicly traded usually. So just like a stock is publicly mm-hmm. traded, a mutual fund is publicly traded. And because of that, usually that you're allowed to invest in IRA. And I'm not, I actually don't know all the rules on what you're allowed to invest in IRA. And mm-hmm. so um, a hedge fund is, is something that uh, you're exactly right. And you think so where you have high risk of gain, but high risk of losses as well. When I, whenever I hear of a hedge fund manager, why do I think of like a crazy young guy? Is that fair? <laughs> is that is that weird? Or uh, yeah, because usually they're not young. Um, in fact, if you invest in a hedge fund run by a twenty-five year old, <laughs> uh, just to throw a random age out there, yeah. <laughs> uh, some idiot twenty-five year old <laughs> uh, with yeah, a podcast. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I'd invest in a hedge fund run by somebody who's. Uh, who's too young. I would, you want to invest in somebody with experience, but the reason why you think that is because it's risk-taking because it's, it's going to be somebody who's investing in riskier assets. And we tend to invest, uh, associate in our heads, risk-taking with youth, hmm. which is 
true because i yeah. mean let's let's face it you know when i was a younger man uh i took a lot more risks i did a lot more things that in retrospect well were you had less to stupid. lose we don't have families at you know 23 <laughs> yeah, years old right. so you're not yeah. too high on the ladder to yeah. where you if you fall off you're toast you know <laughs> you have not, a family yeah. you have a mortgage you have this all of a sudden you're pretty high up and riskiness risky behavior becomes less attractive i think yeah and there's actually chemical changes that happen to a man in their brains when oh, they yeah. start when they get married and start living with a woman and mm-hmm. have a family, there's your brain's changed. Like it's not just a, there's, there's actually been some research on this that where people originally thought like, Oh, well people who get married, men who get married are the ones who are lower risk because women like men who are less risky because they're safer. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're actually going to provide for a family. Yeah. Uh, you're opposed- starting to, Oh, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, am I getting away from the mic? No, 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 no. As opposed to what? Oh, as opposed to, so they used to think that it was a selection problem mm-hmm. where, or not problem, but it was a selection was causing this where women were selecting low risk men to marry uh, until they looked at people's brains and they realized that it was actually, uh, it was actually your brains change when you get married and you start taking less risk. And that's mm-hmm. why married men get uh, have, don't have to pay as much for uh, car insurance. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you start talking about psychology and really a little bit of neurology, biology, and, and spending and finances. It's very interesting. And, oh, my gosh, when it comes to attraction and what you're saying, like women being more attracted to, when they come to, like, the marrying age, a typical marrying age, mid 20s to late 20s to early 30s and stuff of course they start to look for less of that hardcore bike riding you know (laughs) risk-taking skydiving guy which is cool when you're mid low 20s and before like that's cool because you're not thinking about starting a family but once you start thinking about starting a family you don't want crazy guy anymore you want someone that's going to be reliable and safe and for yeah. pete's sakes you have kids yeah they're more important than you are you and they're fragile and they're basically suicide machines because they're always running into problems and stuff so i've been told i don't really know but <laughs> but like yeah of course you want someone that's more reliable and when it comes when you're an adult and you start wanting to invest money i would imagine that it's a lot of the same you don't want any risk and things you would probably go with a roth ira rather than a hedge fund right uh, typically, so a, a Roth or, or an IRA is not an investment product. We are brought to you by Forest Edge Tree Service. If you have trees or tree stumps on your property that you want gone, go nowhere else but Livingston County's premier tree service provider, Forest Edge Tree Service. Your yard is no place for looming, dead, or damaged trees because it's just a matter of time before they come down, ruining your property, ruining your week, and ruining your bank account. This is exactly why you need to be a responsible adult and hire the services of Forest Edge Tree Service. Simply give Joe Rudin a call or text Text at 815-615-3037 to get a free quote today. Yes, I said free. Keep your family, pets, vehicles, and neighbors safe and save yourself from a world of headaches when you call or text Forest Edge Tree Service to get those dangerous, looming, troublesome trees off of your property. That's Forest Edge Tree Service, Livingston County's premier tree service provider. An IRA is merely the way that the IRS taxes you on it. Explain that. I don't know if I understand that. So I apologize. That's okay. Uh, so if if you have 
if you end up doing a great job this year, I assume you are. And at the end of the year, very, you end up very with, mediocre, but <laughs> continue. And at the end of the year, you have an extra couple thousand dollars to invest. You can invest that in a mutual fund. You can invest that in an individual stock. You can invest that in, well, if you had $200,000 rather than $2,000, you could, we might be able to invest in a hedge fund. It's mm-hmm. difficult for people with small amounts of money to find a hedge fund willing to take them. There's, um, there's, there's rules on, uh, not really, but if a hedge fund takes your money and doesn't make sure that you are okay if you lose that money, then they can get in trouble for that. So one one way that they are able to screen you is uh, there's a term called a qualified investor that most people are completely not familiar with. Basically, if I, I believe the limits are uh, something like a million dollars in net worth or $200,000 a year in income. And basically above those levels, the IRS figures, well, you're a big boy, you can oh, look after yourself. And so you get this title when you hit these two Marks the two hundred thousand dollars income in a net worth over a million dollars. You become a qualified investor. Yeah, and you can invest in anything. which makes sense. Whereas, uh, or and actually, probably me with my training, I could probably count as a qualified investor. It's 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 not a well defined term, but basically, the IRS wants to make sure that you know what you're getting into, or not the IRS, sorry, the SEC wants to make sure that you know what you're getting into. And if you're a qualified investor, then you can invest in anything. If you're not a qualified investor, a lot of funds won't take you because they run the risk of the, mm-hmm. if it fails and you come back and sue them for fraud, you can say, well, I didn't know what I was getting into. Oh. And if you're a, if you're well off enough to where you can afford to lose that and where you could sit in, then, then then you can no longer plead ignorance right exactly sue them, <laughs> that's right which is an odd thing to stand on in order to sue someone it's like come on i didn't know anything i didn't know better <laughs> you owe me money now well for, odd. well if you're accusing someone of fraud i mean it, fr- fraud means different things to somebody okay. who doesn't really understand finance than to somebody who does understand what they're getting into okay yeah. how could yeah. someone but, commit the crime of fraud, uh, a hedge fund, how could they commit fraud? What would fraud look like exactly? And does it happen often? This is sort of out of my expertise, but in general, one thing they could do is they could say, we're going to invest in growth stocks, and then they could take all the money and put it in value stocks. Okay. That could be construed as fraud. What's a growth? Is a growth stock like a company that's growing in a value stock is something that's sitting and hopefully gaining value? Right. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, I got that right. Man, Can you believe uh, that? Yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. That was just is in the title of the things you were saying. I took a lucky guess. Yeah. But, but not. But now that's not necessarily for. But like if you're uh, an obvious example of fraud is if I say I'm going to invest hmm. in growth stocks and instead I, I don't know invest it in my own yacht. That's an obvious okay. example of fraud, um, and that huh. that yeah. I think it doesn't matter what your investor is, you could still get a key. But if if you don't if if you run an investment fund and you don't tell your investors what the risks are accurately, you open yourself up to accusations of fraud. Sure, it it it's not like marketing your own business. It doesn't seem like where you can say like all the good things and not say one of the bad things. When it comes to trying to get people to invest in whatever you're investing in, mm-hmm. I guess you have to be completely transparent and rightfully mm-hmm. so, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
one thing, okay, one thing that you mentioned, and I want to start talking about what I understand to be corporate finance, you know, uh, financial practices, financial rules, legislation pertaining to the corporate world, corporations, big businesses. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something about Ireland, something about maybe oh, okay. another yeah. place, and it's. I think you were referencing like tax havens. And this is where I really don't know much, but I hear a lot about it. People say that corporate elites, people high up in a corporation, um, I think Amazon's a corporation, Walmart, things like that. Somehow, there is a way that us mere citizens, I shouldn't say you in (laughs) that, but me, like we don't know how they do it, but somehow they avoid paying taxes as much as they should or something like that. And you've Mm -hmm. mentioned Ireland offshore something can you talk about is that true do they avoid taxes and if so or can they avoid taxes i should say does it happen sometimes is it legal and how do they do it Ooh, there's lots of different ways to avoid taxes partially because the world is complicated we don't live in a world that's controlled by a world government Different countries are allowed to have different tax regimes. They are allowed to... And the tax regime is like tax laws and rules and stuff. Okay. So um, Ireland is allowed to have their own tax code. The United States can't tell Ireland that you have to have a... a, they, They can't tell them anything about their tax code. Sure. We can't tell Panama about their tax code. We can't tell the Bahamas about their tax code. We don't have that right to tell them what their tax code is. So if they want to say that people who start a business in our country and contribute jobs to our economy get tax breaks, they're allowed to do that. And if you're very wealthy, you can hire people like me to figure out which countries have those tax breaks and get them for yourself. That are going to be the most beneficial for you. Yes. And that's why no matter what our top tax rate is, the billionaires will never pay that. Very interesting. So it's true, huh? Yeah. People say that all the time. Well, I didn't know if it was correct. I'm like, how do they? how are they not going to pay it? But yeah. explain how they're not going to pay it. So they come to you and what do you do exactly? Well, it wouldn't be me personally because I, I... They all come yeah, but, to you. <laughs> uh, it's well, your so, fault. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> but like another way that you could do it is through actually investing in real estate. So most real estate companies are pass-through entities where they don't pay... And um, by pass-through entity, I mean where uh, if you're structured as a limited partnership, limited partnerships don't pay taxes on their incomes like corporations do. In- instead, hmm. your hmm. ownership of a limit, like if I own one share in a limited partnership, I actually own a stock uh, that's a limited partnership, but it's called Cedar Fair. They own amusement parks. Okay. And it's a publicly traded stock, but they don't, when they make money every year, uh, since I own a, a, like a few shares of it, <laughs> they send me something taxes saying, well, we, we made this much money per this year. You own, I don't know, one one millionth of our company, mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that. So you have to apply to your taxes one as part of your income as one one millionth of the income of this company. Mm-hmm. And if you own a real estate company, like say, I don't know, the Trump Organization is a real estate company. <laughs> okay. Then uh, the company itself doesn't pay taxes. 
And for real estate companies in particular, they're allowed to take depreciation that basically means that they never make any income on paper. We are brought to you by Kelly Gerber, a trusted real estate agent in central Illinois. Do you need a trusted real estate professional to assist you in navigating through the buying or selling process? If you do, remember one name, Kelly Gerber. Kelly is a phenomenal real estate agent for Keeley Real Estate in Fairbury, Illinois. If you're selling, she has premier marketing strategies implemented to assure that your home is circulated to buyers throughout Illinois. If you're buying, she has professional relationships with lenders, title companies, inspectors, and attorneys to alleviate the stress that comes with buying a home. Whether you're buying or selling, Kelly works hard to ensure that the real estate process is enjoyable and stress-free. It's a seller's market, so the time to call is now. Call Kelly up at 217-390-8205 or send her an email at kelly at keelyrealestate.com to begin your real estate journey today. Member of Mid-Illinois Realtors Association, Illinois Board of Realtors, and the National Association of Realtors. Depreciation is where, so if I buy an expense, you you have a really nice studio here, you spend a lot of money on it. Hmm. This uh, a corporation has a choice when they spend money on stuff like this. Are they going to count it as an expense this year? If you count it as an expense this year, then that counts against your income and you don't pay taxes on that, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it makes sense, right? Because my profit at the end of the year is revenue minus expenses equals profit. You only pay taxes on the profit. You don't pay taxes on the revenue. Sure. Expenses exceed profit. You don't pay taxes. That's right. right. Yeah. Okay. Now, if I bought something that would last a while, like a building, a building is not expensed like that, right? If I spend... If, if, if I bought this whole building that you're in right now, and if I was a company buying that, I wouldn't put that as an expense. Instead, I uh, what the IRS has you do is you write off a little bit of it every year as depreciation. So for commercial buildings, it's it, depending on uh, whether it's residential or uh, commercial, it's either 27 and a half year write-off period or 40 year write-off period. So that means if if it's uh, if if you're in the forty year category, one fortieth of the purchase price of the building that you're in gets to be deducted every year from your taxes, as that was your expense of buying the building. Interesting. Yep. Okay. And huh. then and then you don't actually. So it'll get you in the end because if you sell the building, then you have to pay taxes on the difference between the book value of it and what you sell it for. So uh-huh. if you hang on to it though the chickens never come home to roost Mm -hmm. and you never actually end up having to pay taxes so that's how real estate companies are able to avoid generally paying taxes okay but if it's not a real estate company how how do you utilize the tax laws in ireland in order so that it helps a person when it comes to taxes like how would you take their money (laughs) put it in a bank in ireland is that how it works or what it's very complicated um the one method that used to be legal they actually called it they called it a double irish with a dutch sandwich <laughs> okay <laughs> used to be legal yeah uh, the, the europe has closed that tax loophole because ireland is part of the eu now so uh since ireland has moved to the eu they are no longer they're under the basically germany and france uh didn't want ireland to be a tax haven anymore and so they 
sort of closed most of the loopholes for Ireland. But there's Ireland's one country. It was one tax haven. Uh, there's lots of others that are not part of the EU that are not part of the US. Uh, it's one of the, it actually is a major problem in international relations is trying to uh, uh, trying to figure out how can we um, gain power over these tax havens and and try to change their laws to basically make it more difficult for the wealthy people in uh, in both the EU and the US and throughout the world to, to, to make them pay more of their fair share in taxes. It's, it's a mm. it's a constant problem because uh, the tech it's not just that they hire people like me who's who, who uh, or with my training at least who they put full time into trying to figure out tax loopholes It's the fact that they're constantly finding new ones new ways to organize it and so the regulators have to constantly be updating to close down like oh well they discovered this new one like for example there was um there was one a few years back i think it was like 10 years ago where um where so ibm uh so okay let me put um so when ibm makes sales overseas like any company when they make sales overseas they pay taxes in the country where the money is earned. Sure. Right? And if they want to pay that back to American investors in the U.S. because they're American companies, they have to bring it back to the U.S. first and then pay U.S. taxes on it. Because it, there's the U.S. actually has higher tax rates than most other countries, at least corporate tax rates. So if in order to bring it back, you have to pay the U.S. government money. So one, if they... Uh, pay dividends out, they would have to bring the money back first, pay taxes, then pay investors. So one trick that a lot of companies did for a while was instead of paying back the dividends, they would repurchase shares of their stock from their overseas bank accounts. So they say that one more time just so, so I can hear it. <laughs> so instead of having IBM corporate purchase shares in the US, they would have IBM branch in Ireland or in another another tax haven purchased those shares back and in fact when IBM did that they, they made an announcement because uh, uh, because little companies have been doing this for a long time but when uh, IBM one uh, announced it, that they were doing several billion dollar share buyback that way the uh, the regulatory bodies literally the next day they're like oh we just read this in the newspaper we're going to shut down that law and it actually sort of ticked off a lot of other the the people who have been using this tax loophole for a long time because they're like oh man you, you ruined our ability to to game the system wow <laughs> um, yeah it's it, uh, so basically what the end result of all this is is you can try to keep up with the new changes in um in the new loopholes that are discovered and you could shut them down as they arise but you're never going to be able to eliminate it you're mm -hmm. never going to be able to actually make the people who can afford to pay you know tens of millions of dollars a year to people to to people like me to find these loopholes you're never going to be able to shut that down mm -hmm. so this idea that you're ever going to be able to get the billionaires to pay their fair share is a fallacy. It's sure you can read, you can make Very it more fair, but they're never. So raising the top income tax rate in the U S will never actually result in getting the wealthy to pay their fair. No, what, what it will do is it'll get doctors and lawyers and people 
who earn a lot of money, people who are, you might say, rich but not wealthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so people who are in the millionaire range or 10 millionaire range rather than people who are in the billionaire range. You can get the millionaires to pay more by raising the top tax rates, but you can't get the billionaires to pay more because they they never pay those rates. Because they have the money to hire someone to find loopholes in a wide, in a, in, throughout the world, yep. really. So that's yep. in, what you're saying is very <laughs> profound, honestly. That's very interesting. I have, and what's interesting about in the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, um, as they raise, as they seek to raise the tax rates for the top 1%, the millionaires, billionaires, uh, it seems like just below that, the people that make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, their rates also go up too, typically, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have a friend whose dad is right in this range, and luckily he has a family member who is an employer who is his employer, who is his boss. And what they do is they look at the tax brackets for that year and they say, okay, so you're right here. If you make $1,000 more this year, you're going to be paying like 38% in taxes rather than 30%. So they'll just keep them right below that <laughs> tax bracket right there so that he won't you know, have to pay a lot more. Because he would literally, if he made $1,000 more in his profit that year or what he gets paid that year, he would be losing money for the year and so it's just um, weird well, how tax brackets work actually that uh so that only so if you make that one thousand dollars more if you're one thousand dollars over the limit for the like i don't know 38 percent tax bracket mm-hmm. you only pay the 38 percent on that one thousand dollars oh the, is that right yeah so i'm a dummy <laughs> oh no that's it's a common misconception because most of us when we fill out our taxes we're just like okay it says i owe four thousand dollars or uh-huh. or it says you know hey i'm getting back at that most of us don't actually look at it but the the first uh uh depending on how many dependents you have the first uh amount of money that you make isn't taxed at all then the next little chunk is taxed at the lowest rate which uh, what is the lowest rate right now is it 15 percent or something i don't know um but then but getting into that tax bracket doesn't affect the first amount that you make and Interesting. then it, it, it works that way all the way up with it we call that a progressive tax system yeah sure okay yeah. Well, yeah. interesting of course you know what you're talking about that why have i not known <laughs> that though that I thought yeah. the whole chunk of money that you made that year was taxed at the rate, the highest rate that they could do, the highest bracket that you fell into. I thought it was all taxed at that rate, but not the case. Yeah. <laughs> Very well, interesting. But, but you are right. So actually one of the biggest problems with that is that if you have, is that let's say like your friend who is right on the cusp of going into one of the highest tax brackets. If that person has a spouse who's a nurse or who is a teacher or who is, uh, you know, some profession where they, where they're doing it because they love it or like a social worker, they're doing it because they love it. Um, they're, they're not doing it for the extra money. They actually end up paying a much, much higher tax rate because their spouse makes a lot of money. So you, you actually see very uh, talented, hardworking people who are like, well, why am I putting in all this time and energy when I'm getting very little out? Because at that point, the government's taking almost half um, because, simply because their spouse makes so much. So you, you end up taking a lot of very talented, hardworking people out of the workforce that way. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, sort of a shame. But. Do you have any opinions? And again, we we spoke about this beforehand that you you do work at Illinois State University, fine university, great place. You love what you do, all that good oh, stuff. Yeah. But um, 
and feel free to decline this question, but do you have any opinions about taxes in general in the United States? Are we currently doing what you think is right? Are we on the right path with creating legislation regarding our taxation system? Or are we going in the wrong direction? What would you recommend? If if it were up to you, what would you make <laughs> us at least consider? We are brought to you by Fairberry Furniture. Fairberry Furniture is the area's absolute favorite furniture store. Their selection is gargantuan. Their staff is helpful and friendly, and they have all of your favorite brands of mattresses, tables, chairs, recliners, couches, and basically all furniture items. So make your home comfy, stylish, and delightful when you shop at Fairberry's own Fairberry Furniture. As far as as far as legislation for taxes. Oh, that's a minefield of a question. Yes. Oh, I'm just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like do I have opinions? I have lots of opinions. I'm, uh, my wife yells at me all the time for telling people my opinions too much. Uh, so well, I, I this think is I, the place to do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so overall, there's, yeah, uh, I, I think if you ask more specific questions, I can, I can figure out exactly where you're going. Are you, yeah. are you pro- a flat tax or do you like the um, tax bracket system that we have the progressive tax do you think uh, when I think of just basic logic and morality I would think that a percentage of 10% 15% flat tax makes the most sense and I think that's what we have in Illinois at this point don't we we? at the state level yes we do Um, for income tax we do Okay. But, but sales tax is not. So sales tax is based on how much you spend. And the moment you exclude base, so sales tax seems like a flat tax in most cases, right? Because you pay, I don't know what the percent is. Let's say it's 4%. Yeah. If you So you pay 4% on everything you buy. But the moment you exclude basic necessities from a sales tax, it becomes a progressive tax. So I believe you don't have to pay tax, sales tax on food. You don't have to pay sales tax on, uh, uh, I believe, do we have to pay sales tax on electricity? I, I don't know. But um, mm. the moment you take those away, it becomes progressive. Now, the problem is when you put a sales tax on gasoline, which everyone uses, and in fact, the poor spend a lot higher percentage of their salary on gasoline than the rich do, then it becomes regressive, where the poor pay more than the rich. I feel like that happens, regressive mandates or regressive legislation that was intended to be progressive ends Mm -hmm. up being regressive. Like with the minimum wage hike, isn't it true that it's largely going to make less jobs that people with less lower income would typically occupy? Like they're going to be out of work and then... Mm -hmm you know, McDonald's is going to charge more for their food and who eats McDonald's? It's the lower income people. And I don't mean this in any offensive way, but I've heard that these things that seem to be progressive on the face of them end up hurting the very class of people that you're trying to help. Uh, the best example for that, which uh, a lot of this might get me in trouble at work, but I it, this is something that I strongly believe. But is, actually, is it factual? Yes. Okay, well. Ob- Obamacare's mandate that full-time workers have to have health care the result of that was to make uh, sorry uh, was to make many employers who did not want to pay health care and uh and basically employed people close to minimum wage it made them move everybody from full-time to part-time and the result of that was that now people who are 
at the low end of working class, like moving into like the poor class, basically can't get a full-time job because nobody's w- willing to offer a full-time job at that wage. Right. So they end up having to get two or sometimes even three separate jobs, which involves changing their schedules up every week, which involves, you know, making sure that their schedules don't overlap, making uh, driving to two different places. So you, now you have two commutes a day rather than one commute a day. And it was actually have, has a very negative effect on the well-being of the working poor. Mm-hmm. And that, that was, uh, yeah, I would say, in, depending on the specific law change, that's, actually, that's a huge concern that it is um, the unintended consequences of the people. So one, one thing that, um, that uh, Milton Friedman said is you should judge a law by its outcome, not its intentions. And many times, mm-hmm. many of the types of laws that we see passed that are intended to help the poor actually end up hurting them because of things like this. So now, therefore, not, it's a not poor a, law. It's a bad law. Yeah, n- not everyone. Like, there's many arguments to be made in favor of a minimum wage. For example, bumping the minimum wage doesn't just bump people at minimum wage. It bumps people who are within 10 or 20% of the minimum wage too. So it actually ends up bumping a whole lot of people up. So there's an argument to be made for bumping the minimum wage as well. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, do the, does the good outweigh the negative? And, uh, it's, it's very difficult to, uh, to measure the full impact of that and to measure which, does the sum total of the law outweigh do the positives outweigh the negative it's, mm-hmm. it's something where a lot of the answer to the question depends on your own personal value system and we live in a diverse country where people have different value systems so it could be a different answer for you than it would be for me or than you know some of your listeners mm-hmm. or, uh, uh, yeah okay so that's all very interesting but for the sake of time i do want to go <laughs> okay. on to a slightly different topic and that is that you mentioned beforehand i had this little Small businesses for dummies book. So I've learned about, you know, there's different, of course, there's different business entities. There's single member LLCs, which is what the Paul Garcia show is. There's multi member LLCs. There are partnerships. They're corporations, you know. Do they each have their own separate laws regarding taxation and financial practices, things like that? Things like that. In our corporations, do the laws that they have to adhere to are they drastically different than say a single member LLC? Ooh, that's that's a huge question. Uh, I could give a whole class on this. Right. But, well, <laughs> but, are the laws yeah. that corporations have to adhere to are they much different than those that I have to adhere to? Um, because people always say that corporations, you know, they're they're treated much more nicely by the federal government than smaller businesses like single member LLCs and stuff. Is that, is that correct? It's actually the opposite. Um, large corporations have much, much um, more onerous laws in most cases. They have to do a lot more reporting to the federal government. Uh, other than you filing your taxes and, you know, fi- and listening to the general laws that govern you as an individual, right? Uh, your LLC doesn't really have many other laws with it. So as long as you're not, you know, abusing your workers or something like that, which that's the, uh, then you don't have to file. You don't have many 
laws that you have to follow just because you organize as an LLC. Large corporations have large reporting requirements. Actually, one big issue that you're seeing now with the internet age is that uh, you know it, uh, tax law changes slowly over time. It, people are very uh, uh, it, there's usually not a whole lot of things that change the fundamental nature of tax laws. But one thing that did change it was sales tax around the internet. So it used to be when I was little you couldn't buy something from somebody hundreds of miles away. You had to go to the store and buy it. You know, maybe you could do a mail order, but that was, that was difficult. And uh, the, basically they wouldn't tax, they would, you wouldn't charge sales tax on a mail order. Mm-hmm. Then when Amazon came in and started taking away sales from small businesses, some, uh, gradually over time, states started taxing Amazon uh, sales tax. And it's taken a while to actually get it to where most states actually charge sales tax for online. But Amazon paying sales taxes in local jurisdictions is no big deal because they have tens of billions of dollars of sales. They can purchase the software to figure out, okay, who exactly bought that? Where was mm-hmm. where was it bought? How much should the sales tax be? Uh, let's, and the checks that they would send to the local governments are pretty big. Mm-hmm. But... If you have a small company that has maybe a few thousand dollars in sales, it's difficult for you to figure out how much sales tax you should pay. You don't buy the, t- the sales tax software for that. Mm-hmm. So s- different states have different thresholds for you have to pay. And it's not just states because you pay local sales taxes. Mm. In most counties have local sales. There's over 3,000 counties in the U.S. that all have different sales tax regimes. So the companies have to figure out what county was that made in? What is their sales tax rate? Who Man. do I send the check to? It's a lot of work. Holy it, cow. Yeah. And each county has a different threshold for when they consider it to be a, like a different sales threshold. So like if you sell $10,000 of material to somebody in Cook County, that might not reach the level. It might be 15. It might be 100,000. I don't actually know what the rules are, but each mm-hmm. county has their own level. For a small corporation, that's a huge onerous requirement to make them do. So that's why the levels are generally high enough to where someone at the at the small level doesn't have to worry about it. But uh, but as more and more sales move there, counties are lowering and states are lowering the amount at which uh, uh, the size levels at which small companies have to pay. So something that legally it might be fair because mm-hmm. Amazon has to pay the same rate that that I would as, uh, you know, as a small company. But as far as the impact on us, it's a huge advantage to a large corporation like Amazon, simply because it's a huge, a much lower percentage of their total sales. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that's, <laughs> that might not be what you're asking. No, to. no, that's good. <laughs> but okay. So when we talk about corporations and finance, really, when we talk about politics, yeah, right. Yeah, I know we're yeah. treading on some, uh, dicey stuff here walking on eggshells maybe but when we talk about politics it's hard not to mention corporate finance a little bit because corporations Mm -hmm. can form political action committees i think is what they're called PACs, Mm -hmm. that can directly fund uh political campaigns Mm -hmm. which is a point of contention for a lot of people like people Mm -hmm. it's controversial in a way because of course it's no secret say ford motor or whatever general Mm -hmm. ford the Ford trucks company that, you know, (laughs) they can give millions of dollars to a candidate who they think and who they hope in 
perhaps who they try to convince will pass legislation that will benefit them in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. So then you run into the problem, are these politicians making decisions based on the well-being of the country at large and the citizens Mm -hmm. at large, or are they merely adhering to the people that give them the most money? Mm -hmm. Do you think that that whole system, not to mention also that corporations can hire lobbyists who can go and try to convince politicians of passing Mm -hmm. legislation that that will benefit them, that's all legal. Do you think that's okay that that is legal? Ooh. Um, is there any place where it's not legal? Um, you mean in the world or in the United States? Yeah, in the world. Because uh, we're not comparing to an ideal system here. Let's compare it to right. reality. Is there any place where that's not legal? That's a, I don't know. You, you can answer that question. Is, that, is it legal everywhere? Um, it's not legal in a country like China or Russia. Oh, so that's not exactly, uh, those are not the places we necessarily look up to at all when it comes to that type of stuff. And so, okay. Yeah. So in a place like the U S where we have an open society, if people want to talk to the government, they're allowed to, what we'd require them to do is report it. And that's a difference between the U S and other regimes. So, um, there's a very, very neat study done by my advisor at Purdue and one and, uh, and actually by another one of my professors at Purdue they, so they, um, where they look at um, uh, members of parliaments throughout the world or Congress in the U.S. who are either owners of large corporations or who are on boards of directors of large corporations. And what is the effect on those corporations? And what they find is that there's tons of findings about the like there's actually huge academic literature on, or I shouldn't say huge but there's a, a lot of academic literature on this that's very consistent that probably isn't surprising <laughs> what do you think the effects would be mm. they're more likely to be bailed out okay in the event of uh, downstress they're right. they're more likely to uh, um, th- th- they have all sorts of benefits they're actually more likely to have to get cheap loans Mm-hmm. from banks for some reason we for some reason yeah, yeah we huh. don't we don't exactly know why but well, the interesting thing about that is that there's almost no observations of that happening in the US you look at Italy the richest man in the country was the president for almost a decade you look at it that is common in most other countries you don't see that in the US i mean yes donald trump is wealthy He's the ex- not only is he the exception, he's also nowhere near the richest man in the country. Um, but, I mean, you look at, you know, uh, I mean, the Bidens, the Obamas, the Bushes, they're all wealthy, but none of them are anywhere close to the richest people in the country, right? And actually, right. if you look at uh, Obama and Biden particularly, they only got wealthy after they became famous politicians, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see people who are in charge in the U.S. who are not part of the established power structure. Um, you see... It, that that's one of the one of the reasons for that is that in the U.S. the government is small enough to where you can succeed outside of it. This is not the case in other countries. It's gotten to the point where even Canada. Uh, this is a fun fact for you: fifty um, percent of the Canadian stock market is controlled by ten families. Mm. I don't mean they own fifty percent of the companies but they own enough shares of them that they control the companies and they own it through pyramid structures. 
basically hmm. by pyramid i don't mean pyramid i don't not, not pyramid scheme yeah not pyramid scheme but it's where okay i own 10 percent of this uh holding company and that's the dominant amount and that holding company owns 50 percent of this holding company that and which owns 50 percent of this holding company which then owns 20 percent of this stock so all told i might only own one percent of the company's cash flows but i still control the company and if you that's something that doesn't exist in the U.S. Hmm. Um, most large companies in the U.S. are widely held and succeed apart from the government. In Canada and most other countries, that's necessary because the government is such a large portion of the economy that to succeed, you need favor in the government. Or not completely in countries like Canada, because like I said, half of it is still controlled by other people. But hmm. it's 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 very, very difficult to get ahead in countries like that without lobbying the government mm-hmm. in the u.s you can get ahead without lobbying the government right and that's that's i think a beautiful thing about our system um as far as PACs and dark money um what percent of u.s companies do you think have PACs? um well <laughs> maybe what percent of corporations yeah. mm-hmm. uh probably say 50 50 uh, percent it's, it's about 10 percent okay and even one third of industries in the U.S. have zero companies with PACs and zero industry organizations with PACs. Or sorry, one third have them and two thirds don't. So it's uh, the vast majority of firms in the U.S. have figured that it's not in their interest to waste money trying to bribe politicians. Understood. And that's that's a good thing. I think that's a very good thing. And that's why our reporting system is so important because rather than making it illegal where if we made it illegal it would all go underground it would still happen it just would not be reported instead we require it to be reported where people like me can go in and actually figure out what's going on here and what are the dirty deeds going on and what we find is that in the u.s yeah there's occasionally things that go on that are bad but by and large most of our system is run outside of that and what you see is even in the case where companies support a politician directly, typically it's not a case where they're bribing them. It's a case where, oh, like a gun manufacturer isn't going to give money to a candidate who's anti-gun, mm-hmm. right? They're right. going to give money to a candidate who's pro-gun. So they're choosing a candidate that they that supports their position rather than bribing the politician to change their position. Right. Now, that still has effects, obviously, because more money makes it more likely that you'll get elected. But you you don't see a huge difference even then. So uh, let's take the 2016 election. Right. Hillary Clinton had something like three times as much fundraising as Donald Trump did from outside parties. Didn't win her the election. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's you frequently see where the money doesn't win you the election in the u.s i mean yes it helps it absolutely oh whoops sorry i keep touching this no it's no biggie it's right in the way yeah Yeah. it's no biggie yeah so so i I guess i'm sort of making a uh, impassioned defense you might say for our system because i think that compared to other systems i think it works better for the poor and the middle class Mm -hmm. and uh, especially the middle class our system works far better than than uh, than any other system so one fun fact that I, I like to tell people so if you if you look at median income so like 50th percentile so people right in the middle so this isn't looking at like average income where where you know the wealthy could pull it up uh, this is just looking at the average people what uh the poorest state in the united states 
would be the wealthiest country in Europe if it was in Europe. The poorest state in the U.S. by median income is West Virginia. <laughs> and West people in West Virginia, the average people in West Virginia make 20% more than people in Germany. They make 25% more than people who are median in the U.K. This is our poorest state. And by the way, it has a much lower cost of living than those places, too. And people who live in West Virginia or people who live in the U.S., our houses are twice the size on average of people in Europe. So that's it, it, in for, for about the same cost. So the well-being that you get under the U.S. system is so much greater than everywhere else in the world. Because, you know, Western Europe is pretty much the wealthiest place. I mean, other than like, you know, Australia, Canada, Japan. But even if you compare... Uh, the outcomes in our system end up being much better for the middle class because uh, it's simply because of the way that we we've set up our political and economic system. So when it, it, it frustrates me when I hear people attacking our system as if it's somehow bad for the middle class when actually the outcome is unquestionably uh, uh, superior for the average people in the U.S. Do you think that capitalism in the United States, considering all that you know about corporations, how corporate finance works in the grand scheme of things, uh, how it coexists with the federal government, things like that. Do you think that capitalism is the best financial system or economic system around today in the world? And then do you think that the financial future of the United States looks good? Uh, Winston Churchill was asked that about democracy. His response was that it's the worst system mankind ever invented, except for all the other systems we've tried. Oh, <laughs> I was about to say, geez, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Then you hit me with that second part. That's good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, that's it, hilarious, actually. <laughs> in short, yes, I, I, I believe like what Winston Churchill said about democracy is also true for capitalism for a large, diverse group, mm. at least for for a smaller group, perhaps something else is better, um, it, but that's not what I analyze, so I can't really say too much about what would be best in small groups. Okay. And as for yeah. the future of the United States from a financial perspective, do you uh, think we have some work to do, or would you not prefer not to even <laughs> give a guess or your um, answer? Well, the trends aren't in the right direction. They haven't been for a couple decades financially for the U.S., uh, as a as a country as a government at least as a country though as a because the government's just a small part of the country mm-hmm. as a country the U.S. is stronger now than it's ever been uh, or I shouldn't say now with the pandemic but with the compared to other countries we are uh, we are extremely well off we have enough. Um, uh, I think the future for the U.S. as a whole is bright. Now, are we going to have to make some changes to the way that we run our government's finances? E- eventually, yes. You know, eventually we're going to. We have too much. Uh, we've been running deficits for a couple decades now that are not sustainable. So eventually, the chickens are going to come home to roost on that. But we have a better ability to address that than any other country in the world because our. Uh, private sector is so incredibly strong Um, as opposed to like a country like Greece when they ran into issues a few years ago they did not have the private sector to uh, bail out the government basically Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, 
so I think the U.S. as a mm. whole is strong. The government is going to need to make some some changes. Uh, I that's a, a political question as far as you know. Do we reduce spending or do we increase taxes? Either way, it's gonna uh, it's gonna hurt people when it comes, and it's gonna hurt the middle class, and it's gonna more than anyone else because that's where most of the wealth is in the u.s is in the middle and upper middle classes so it's going to hurt the uh those people are going to have to get used to a slightly higher lower standard of living when we come around when the chickens do come home to roost at the government level but it Mm -hmm. won't drive us down to the level of where we're even at a lot of our peers because a lot of our peer countries are also doing the same thing if you look at like the uh the government debt levels in western europe are in general worse than the U.S. Um, it, it, if you look at the response to COVID, the U.S. had a much lower dip in the economy as a response to co- uh, as compared to uh, uh, other advanced economies. Um, so, and we had a much. If you look at our uh, monetary system, if you look at our uh, like the uh, like the Fed and mm-hmm. the um, which is the Federal Reserve System, which controls our money, they have a lot more room to maneuver than any other advanced economy does because it's been managed fairly well up till now as opposed to the the, the European governments spent a lot of money out of their central banks to bail them out of the European financial crisis from pretty much 2009 to 2015. And that... Um, that put them in a much low. And Japan has had issues as well. Pretty much seems the like last every country years. has issues. Yeah, every country has issues. Nobody's and, perfect. No one's got the perfect system, huh? Well, it's not. It's not about this. It's how how have they addressed crises in the last oh, twenty right. thirty years? And the U.S. has not put as much resources into battle crises for the last twenty thirty years as most of our most of the other advanced economies and so that has left us in a much healthier position especially because we've also had higher economic growth than all those countries for the past 20 30 years so we've grown our way out of problems uh, mm-hmm. that japan has not been able to do um so yes going for uh going forward the u.s is in a much stronger position compared to our peers now are we as strong as we were you know 30 years ago when the berlin wall fell mm-hmm compared to other countries. No, we were the unquestioned top back then. Uh, but uh, we're still uh, we're still in a very strong position financially speaking and uh, and and so at least compared to compared to our peers. Tim, this yeah, is sorry. an incredibly <laughs> fascinating conversation. We covered a lot of ground. That was awesome. We the script didn't hardly even come into play because that was great. We went everywhere. Thank you so much. That was incredibly educational, very informative. Been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. It's, it's, it's been fun being here. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, that- and that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Paul Garcia Show. If you enjoy the show and you want to support it, please consider donating a couple of bucks on Venmo to The Paul Garcia Show. Or better yet, you can support the show's production on patreon.com forward slash Paul Garcia, where for as little as $1 a month, you will gain early access to each and every single episode. And don't forget to subscribe to The Paul Garcia Show on YouTube, follow it on Instagram, like it on Facebook, and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm getting pretty darn close to 1,000 followers on Instagram and 2,000 likes on Facebook. 
So if I can get there, maybe I'll do something pretty awesome like a giveaway or something like that. But anyways, thank you for your support. Thank you for watching The Paul Garcia Show. Thank you for supporting the great people and the great stories in this area. And as always, God bless and have a great week.